brain. That was top tier this week. That was glorious. Thank you. That was so wonderful. It's the thought of getting my throat scoped in a couple of weeks' times just made me feel alive. Oh, we'll save it for the podcast, dear. Honestly, we'll get into all of the throat talk. (laughs) (laughs) Chris McLeod, here we are. Episode number 50. 50. Uh, Better get on with it swiftly. We better get on with it swiftly because it is very late at night. Quarter past 11. We're doing this. It's quite a marvel. I'm still conscious, to be perfectly honest. Well, we'll see how you are by the end of this. If I suddenly shut down on you, I do sincerely apologise. I'm trying. No worries. But I've got sugar and I've got tea, so I should be fine. (laughs) But how the devil are you? Well, I'm fine. I've had quite the uneventful time. That's sometimes a good thing. Yeah, it just feels um, like a lot of things that I would normally be doing haven't been happening this week. I wasn't doing piano lessons this Mm. week. I... Because uh, my student's away. Fair enough. I was working as per mm-hmm. usual. That's really it. <laughs> How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm not long in the door. I was at the opera this evening. <gasps> yeah, which was interesting. Okay. Yeah. How vague. I'll just, I'll leave it, I'll leave it there. You can read between the lines, pals. You can come to your own conclusions. But no, I've been fine. I was on holiday last week. Holiday! Which, which is why there was no which Friday is why episode. We're we should have said this late. in advance. Sorry, pals, but it's been a very busy time. Because <laughs> we've both been chained to our respective jobs and I wasn't in the country for six days. So <laughs> um, it was delightful and it was lovely. I'm also inclined to not talk about it until next week because my story next week ties in with the holiday. <laughs> Okay, well, that makes sense. Or ties in with we the will, place. We'll say no more. Yes, so... Say no more. I can tell you all about it. I mean, by this time, by the time this episode goes out, we'll probably be like three days away before 51 comes out, so... <laughs> exactly. So, for those of you who are listening live, you don't have long to wait. Don't you worry. Absolutely. Not live, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. Like, you're not listening to this in like 2045, basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, my, my hope is that I might get this one edited tomorrow, so it could be up by tomorrow, which is the Sunday. So we're not that we're late. We're not that late. We could be, it could be worse. It oh. could be a lot worse. We're only a could couple be. of days late, but sorry to Jen and Michael, who I know that were particularly peeved that we weren't on time <laughs> with yes. our episodes this week. I expected picket lines, yeah. but... Thankfully, they have, they have forgiven us just. Yeah, Exactly. Which is nice, very nice of them. It was not expected. It wasn't expected, but um, but yeah, that was a nice time. Uh, not being in Glasgow, <laughs> just for a wee, a wee swift trip. Just for a wee swift trip. Because um, actually, it's not until you think about it, you go, "Oh, I've actually not left this country since like when was the last time I was in England? Like November twenty nineteen. That's quite a long time." Yeah, I think it might have been July twenty nineteen for me. Yeah, well, that would make sense because that would be your fringe stuff, yeah. Pyromania, the music. Actually, do you know what? <clears throat> the opera that I saw tonight was very similar to the Pyromania. Okay. Although yours was definitely funnier. Okay, thank you. Because I was going to say, you've already told me what you thought of the opera. <laughs> no, 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 no. I thought much. <laughs> <laughs> I see how that would have come across. No, no. 
It was very similar <laughs> in that it was kind of like the same kind of era and same kind of costumes mm-hmm. and kind of... I loved my costume. There was lots of little ditties that sounded a bit like um, sea shanties. So okay, yeah. so it's, it was, there was there was parallels. If I hear that sea shanty that goes, <laughs> one more time, I will smash the person singing it in the face. Do you face. not like it? I don't think it's that good. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's blinking doing it. But I feel that's like because there was a generation of people that didn't know that sea shanties were a thing. Because sea shanties are great. It's like, true. It is If you true. want to practice your close harmonies, fully recommend singing a wee shanty. Have you heard the sea shanty version of Ballad of Sweeney Todd? I have not, but you have caught my attention. That will be coming your way in, in Thank no you time. very much. So I only came across it because Louis... I've forgotten his last name. Louis, what's his name? Who was in The Grinning Man on the Oh, West yes, End. yes, yes, yes. He was in it. I, I think it may have been an agency in London utilised all like their male singers, I think. I think that's how it came about. It was oh. very good. There's also a disco version that I got sent at the time I was doing Sweetie Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's got a strange vibe, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's fun, listen that's the main song. thing. Yeah, listening to a song about a man slashing throats with some strange equipment at the same time as having a funky beat. It's not a terrible time. <laughs> I'll send you both. It's all about that funky beat. <laughs> it's all about that funky beat. I oh my God. Oh, dear me. What else was I going to say? I was going to say, I started to listen to your little collab with Ah, uh, yes. 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 I don't even know if Shout I got out. the opportunity to tell you that I was doing this. I don't think I did because we were so busy the past couple of weeks. But yes, I did a little guest spot on... A kind of side episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the podcast Letters to Miss Piggy. Um, find them on all major podcast providers. Um, who's a mutual friend and colleague of ours, Jasmine. It's the one she co-hosts. Um, and it was great. Fun. Uh, well, so far I'm only about 15 minutes in. But yeah. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself. Yeah. So the... Jazz and her co-host Abby do a lot of discourse um, on the podcast talking about um, kind of history of the Muppets and the kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of like semi-academic discourse on kind of the comedy and the um, lasting impact of particularly Miss Piggy and her image on kind of like public consciousness. Uh, And it was, yeah... I never thought I'd see the day when I'm sitting critically talking about the Muppets, but it was great fun. <laughs> yeah. I was enjoying it thoroughly. What's your favourite Muppets film? I do love the Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh, what a classic. Yeah. I particularly enjoy that they've now reintroduced a song sung by Ebenezer's love interest. They cut it from the most recent iterations Ooh. of it. Oh, and they recently reinstated it. But I think they'd lost it. They'd cut it and then lost it. But I think they managed to find it. Well, that was very careless of them. Did not remember where they put it careless. down? Very careless. All they had to do was ask me, because I still have the video. Cassette. <laughs> and it's you had it, it all along. So I love that. Because she, when love is gone. It's really good. <laughs> Such a good song. 
it's the first time that you see Scrooge kind of soften up a little bit. Okay. Well, properly soften up, like he's mm-hmm. crying. <laughs> um, and that's always nice to see. Always lovely. Then there's also, not talking about films, but they also had a Muppets PS1 game that I loved. Oh my God, Pete, now we really are. There will be people out there that have never seen a PS1 in their lifetime. Oh yes. Which is rather They're a stunning disturbing. shade of grey. <laughs> yeah, no, it's depressing. Yeah. I remember the first, I remember receiving my PS1 and the games that I received on PS1. What were the games? Casper, The Friend of the Ghost oh. and Spice World. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. A Spice Girls PS1 game. What did that entail? What did one have to do? So each Spice had a different challenge. I don't think I understood half the challenges, to be honest. That's fair enough. I always played the one that Baby played because Baby was the Spice that I was whenever we played Spice Girls, obviously. I can see that. I was the youngest in the fam, so it made sense. Yep. And I was also very blonde. (laughs) So it made sense. But yes, those were my first two. But then I also had this Muppets game and it is so good. It's like Muppets at Halloween. I can never remember the name of it. Monster, Muppet Monster Adventure, I think it might be called. Oh, I love that. Oh my God. And Miss Piggy's superpower. Well, you you weren't Miss Piggy. You were Kermit's nephew, I think. And he had to go around trying to save the Muppets. I don't really know if there was much of a narrative, but this is what I've made it up in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd collect tokens for particular Muppets. And when you collected enough of the tokens, you then got their superpower. Okay. And he could turn himself into these Muppets. So he would turn himself into Miss Piggy, who was dressed as the Bride of Frankenstein. And she would go, (gasps) hiya! And smash through doors and walls. Oh my God. Yeah. So much fun. (sighs) And then you could be Fozzie Bear, who would go, waka waka woo! And you could then climb walls. (laughs) Really good. It's a really good game. Oh, they should bring it back for iPhone. They should. They that should do a remastered fun. version because actually I rewatched some of the footage of the game recently for uh, nostalgia's sake. And it's pretty trash. Oh my God. Do you know, that's so funny you should say that. I did the exact same thing the other, like literally recently with childhood games as well. <laughs> I love that. It's so like, it's really satisfying doing it because you're like, back in those days, I remember looking at this thinking, wow, what a game. Yeah, And legit. the graphics yeah. are terrible. <laughs> it's awful. So I can't really say for sure that I ever watched a lot of the Muppets films, but mm-hmm. I did love the game and I loved the Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah, that literally just went live today, Saturday. And if you just search... Letters to Miss Piggy, you will find it there and give the series a listen, pals, because it is good fun. But yeah, some really good fun chats and some really good discourse on kind of the Muppets history and creation, um, etc. Because it is a very, very rich history, of course, how the Jim Henson Company came about and mm-hmm. all the different... It wasn't just the Muppets that he and his company did. They did lots of creature effects uh, which yeah. is now, of course, a dying art in the industry. Well, since we have quite a bit to get through, shall we just turn to our pal, see what she's up to? Picking, rifling through questions. If you could do an outlander, i.e., touch a magical standing stone and go back in time, 
what period of Scottish history would you hope to land in? Ooh, okay. Just in case you didn't understand what to do an outlander meant, it meant yes. to touch a magical stone. Yes. And turn up not in the 21st century. I'm immediately thinking kind of 1600s. Is that not roughly when the kilt was popularised? Ooh, <laughs> I feel okay. like I want to I wear a kilt all the time. I anticipating that. <laughs> I kind of see myself, I would love to be able to just wear kilts all the time. So that comes to mind. It was pretty brutal back then. I like the idea of remote cottage, hands in the mud kind of living. That's, That's that fair. appeals to me. Like working with the earth and yeah, having a couple of sheep. A couple, I'd have plenty, and I wouldn't ever <laughs> eat them. I would always keep them as friends. I'd have pigs. absolutely. I'd Aww. have cows. I'd have them all, and sheep actually fits quite nicely because as a Macleish, that's what we did. We were sheep oh, herders yeah. in the north. <laughs> so I think I just go back to when I was. When the McLeishes were in the McPherson clan and we were just herding sheep in the north. That's probably what I'm thinking. And I reckon that was probably about the 1600s. You maybe. want to go back to your literal roots? Literal. Literal. Yeah. I could imagine myself living on an island, maybe. Yeah. Quite isolated. I'd probably quite enjoy that. I also quite enjoy the 80s and 90s, but there was also a lot of bad stuff going on then. So maybe no. Yeah, yeah, it was quite a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, you mean like the your... 1980s and 1990s, right? That's it, yeah, 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 yeah. The, more, yeah. the, the newer ones, yeah. The most recent 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. But um, how about yourself? I think I would quite like to pitch up in late 19th century Edinburgh because I'd really like to go and hang out with Joseph Bell and Henry Littlejohn for a day. Yes. Purely because I've done quite a lot. We've done quite a lot on these people on the podcast, and there's just something about them that really fascinates me. I just find yeah. them such interesting human beings, and just the whole that whole time when forensic science. Oh my god! Speaking of forensic science, I went down a kind of murder Google hole today. <laughs> Which isn't very okay. much like me. But I'll talk about You've that in a minute. You've taken a leaf out of my book. Yeah, <laughs> fully did. Um, yeah, and I think it would just be really, really interesting. I mean, Joseph Bell sounds like such a fascinating human. I yeah. would, like, give anything just to have, like, a 10-minute conversation with him because he just sounds like such a unusual but brilliant character. Yeah. I, yeah, just, it feels like that kind of, like, end of the cen- the end of the century... There was so much changing that was that would forge like what we now do today. So I just think it'd yeah, be very, very intriguing true. to see what what was going do- down. Yeah. Um, and then of course the picture over at 19th century Glasgow because it's only fair, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you'd want to get the boast of both. Exactly. No. You don't want to leave the old gal out. I think I just said the boast of both. I don't know. The boast of both. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I did say that, I'll know when I edit. It's an excellent title, though. <laughs> the boast of both. Mm-hmm. The boast of both. So, yeah, I'd really, that's where I'd like to hopefully end up. Yeah. 
should I ever have to touch the magical standing stone? You said that like that was a, it's a thing that's going to happen. Is a thing. I hope that's where I go. (laughs) I hope that's it. Yeah, when when all of us inevitably touch the standing stone, like Captain's an outlander, that's what we're hoping for. Story time. Are you first this week or am I first this week? I want to say yes, because I went last with the Daphne disaster and I think that was last time. Let's go with it. This is bad. How, like, we're literally like two weeks out of practice and already we're like, what? what? What's the what? podcast called? Yeah. A small <laughs> bit <doing>? weird. <laughs> a small bit weird. <laughs> so my story is quite a quick one. Okay. This week, because I, I did write it when I was on holiday. So <laughs> Fair. Didn't have access to all my resources. But here we be. So we're actually going to take a wee trip on down to a building that we've already visited on this podcast. Let's pitch on up to that gorgeous gothic marvel of a building up on Gilmore Hill. We're heading on back to the University of Glasgow. hey Yay! So we know it today as a place of academic and research excellence, having taught generations of students across its 570-year history. Long time. It's a long time. Long time. Um, and you know... Again, I say it, do you know who was involved? Big Maza herself. She loved to just get stuck in. She did. If there was something going, she was right there. Oh, yes. She'd pop on her horse, ride for 17 days, and she'd be there like, nothing's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And as much as 60% of the student body in recent years has been female. Oh, that's it's more than the population. Number. That's more yeah. women per percentage in the population. That's good. Exact, exactly. So it's quite a lot of people that identify as female attending Glasgow Uni. But, unsurprisingly, it hasn't always been the most inclusive of establishments. Well. So, yeah, unsurprisingly. So much like the Edinburgh Seven, a pioneering group of women forged the way for whole generations facing hardship and prejudice as they fought for their right to a higher education. Quite right. Quite right too, because I would not be sitting with my degree if they did not. So, as we know from episode 32, uh, that was so long ago. (laughs) Jeez, oh. Yep, uh, where we talk all things U of G... Um, a separate establishment known as Queen Margaret College, uh, which was the only women's college of higher education in Scotland, I will have you know, um, was created to aid women in obtaining a degree from Scottish universities. Three women were instrumental in its founding and running, and they were Jessie Campbell, Isabella Elder, and Janet Galloway. So nice. Although Galloway immediately makes me think of the cheese. Oh, because you can get Galloway cheese up here, which Can't is good. Can't say I've ever had it. That's fair. Well, you're not... Well, you've got, you're, you're picky with your cheeses, and I don't think... <laughs> yeah, it's if it's got any kind of colour about it, I don't want it. <laughs> exactly. Well, they make very, very luminous orange cheddar, so oh, I can't imagine you. that being up your street. <laughs> no. No, not necessarily. <laughs> Oh, God. So, Jessie Campbell, born 1827 and died in 1907. Wow. One hell of an age. 
was the wife of a wealthy Glaswegian department store owner. I should do. Mr. Enoch yes. Centre, Mr. St. James. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, she actually approached the University of Glasgow with the suggestion of permitting women to attend lectures. So apparently she had said this in the passing. Can't quite remember where or when. I want to say it was like to friends at a party or something like that. And she was kind of like urged to be like, do you know what? This could be a thing, actually. We could make this a thing. So some of these lectures included subjects like natural history, English literature and astronomy. Ooh, look at them stars. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so popular were these lectures, did the Glasgow Association for the Higher Education of Women become established. Lovely. Yes. So one must remember that at this point, women were not yet permitted to matriculate at Scottish universities. So they weren't allowed to go to, to the university, but they could kind of... They created this association that was kind of semi in partnership with the university so they could still get some kind of degree mm-hmm. out of it. Um, so Mrs. Isabella Elder, governor philanthropist and advocate for women's education, purchased and gifted a premises to house this association, which was later going to become Queen Margaret College. And we discuss Elder's life when we talk about the Glasgow Necropolis, because that is where she is buried, on episode 26 of the podcast. (laughs) That's so long ago. (laughs) It's such a long time, honestly, because see, when I was researching this, I had to get my episode list up because I was like, oh yeah, I can put in that we've already talked about this. I didn't think that was as long as 26. That's half the podcast ago, effectively. (laughs) Yeah, that's five and a half months. Yeah. Ew. It just happened. Anyway, so when appealing for funds towards the establishment in 1871, Jesse Campbell said, and I quote, It is often said that if women wish to have higher education, they or their parents ought to pay all the expense of getting it. Such payments have never been expected of men. Large sums of money have been given by government and by private benefactors in order to provide for young men the educational advantages. The association only makes the same appeal on a very much smaller scale and trusts that it will also not make it in vain. So she makes a very good point. Yeah. Also, you, this that could also be considered quite like incendiary by certain circles because... Yeah. It is very much pointing out uh, this system sucks and here's yeah, why. Massive, massive injustice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so good on her. Good on yeah. Jesse. Um, Give him an old f- middle finger. Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Um, so Janet Galloway was the first secretary to the association and she became honorary secretary. I hate that word. Um, to Queen Margaret College in 1883. So her role was largely to liaise with university staff, help with the organising and delivery of teaching and with the pastoral care of students. So she was kind of person that you'd go to with all your questions. So a lot of responsibility for a block of cheese. Absolutely. Absolutely. She mm-hmm. did. She had lots of responsibility for being a wee 
bit of cheddar. But I'm sure she did great. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have to go to you. That was, that was clever. I couldn't think Thank fast you. enough about cheese-based puns, but you did it. Well, well done. I, I think I would. It, it was a difficult one to, to deliver, but I gave you a look. You did. You sold it to me well. The look helped. Though people who it are did. listening, they've got no chance. They've got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, so a former student said that she, quote, was never too busy to see a student, advised as to courses and future careers, encouraged the ambitious, scolded the frivolous, found friends for the solitary, secured posts for those that were ready for them and smoothed untrodden paths for many a diffident beginner. Oh. So she sounds like a very, very nice person, although apparently, and I'm sh- I didn't write this down, but I'm sure it was her, was also very, very conservative in her views and didn't think women should be lecturers and also didn't think women should have the right to vote. So she's a confusing <laughs> slice of cheese. She's <laughs> a, a confusing. She doesn't know what kind of cheese she is. Oh, that's... Yeah, which that's I... That's like... That's worse Which than I sitting on the fence. That's weird. like lying under yeah. the fence. <laughs> it's With a fence. Like two, an arm on each side. An arm on each side. It was, I did find that slightly weird. Yeah. But fair enough. If that was her view, that was her view. But I thought, like, being kind of like the, a key player in this kind of like barrier breaking organization, but for them to go. Yeah, but women still still shouldn't work at universities. It's a bit odd. Yeah, but yeah, well, we are. you're a silly Billy, Mrs. Galloway. Absolutely. <laughs> so Queen Margaret College merged with the university in 1892, and the appetite for education had changed since its conception. There had been an increasing interest in the medical sciences. So much so that a laboratory had to be constructed at Queen Margaret College. A a select group of women would be the first female matriculants at the University of Glasgow in 1892. So we've had the Edinburgh Seven. Let's talk about the Glasgow Four. Oh. Which isn't their name, like their official title, but I had to think of something snappy and similar and that's what it is. We're going with it. The Glasgow Four. We're going to go with it. So, on in the July of 1894, Margaret Dewar, Elizabeth Linus, um, Alice Cumming, who was also known as Lily, and Marion Gilchrist became the first women to graduate in medicine from a Scottish university. I can see you make the face. I know why you're making the face. I will get to that in a minute. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um. And one of these four women we have actually met before, and it's not the one you think it is. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, what? Okay. I think I know why you're making the face, and it's not the reason. Okay. <laughs> you will understand in a moment. Sure, comprends. So, Elizabeth Linus, born 1874 and died 1944, is perhaps better known as Dorothea Chalmers Smith. Not only a pioneer graduate, but a famous Scottish suffragette. Yes. So she would actually be imprisoned and participate in a hunger strike whilst held at Duke Street Prison 
the history of which we talk about in episode 12 of the podcast. So Margaret Dewar would go on to be an assistant resident doctor in Dumfries Hospital from 1895, as an assistant at Garton Naval in 1896, and was a resident surgeon at Sheffield Hospital in 1897. Alice, Lily and Louise are coming, studied an array of practices whilst at university, some of her courses including chemistry, natural natural history, physiology, anatomy, midwifery, forensic medicine, and practical pathology. She had a lot of time on her hands. She really much, she really much did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was studying all of the things to do with medicine, it would appear, and good on her. Yeah. And she was actually in the same graduating class as Marion Gilchrist. So, Miss Marion Gilchrist was born on the 5th of February 1864. She matriculated as an art student at Queen Margaret College in 1887. And after after gaining her LLA in 1890, enrolled at the new medical school available at the college. Now... (laughs) should prefix by saying this is not the same Marion Gilchrist that got her head bashed in with a chair in 1908. Yes, okay. That's was that good. why you were making the face? That's why I was making the face. I was like, well, first of all, I actually was doing the maths in my head and I was like, I don't think when Marion Gilchrist that I spoke about got her head bashed yeah. in, she yeah. was an older lady. So I was yeah, like, how is this working she was. out? Unless I got the dates wrong. So it's no, all no, good. No. That's good. It's all good. Different Marion Gilchrist. Just a complete coincidence that those two women had the same names. Good. Lovely. And are both quite famous for quite different reasons. Yeah, no, this is true. Oscar Slater, still don't think he did it, son. Absolutely, because I was just going on to say that. It was this case that featured in the Square Mile of Murder, which I think we spoke about in episode five, just to sicken us even more. Mm-hmm. Um that led to a major miscarriage of justice, that What's-His-Face tried to... wrote about... What was his name? Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got yeah. involved, yeah. All the things. All linking, the connections. Linking, linking, That's what we're all about here. We're like a sausage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Gilchrist has the honour of being the first female graduate from the University of Glasgow. Congratulations and celebrations. Yeah, I well done, the her. rest of the words. Does it not just say that over and over again quite a Probably. lot of times? Yeah. Who was that, Cliff Richard? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's a creep. Yeah. <laughs> he's always giving me the willies. Oh my God, we can still save that for another episode because I need to ask more questions about this. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, come back to this in future weeks. So she became a general practitioner in Glasgow's affluent West End and her specialism was in diseases of the eye. Ooh. Yeah, I can't imagine that being much fun. No. Yeah, I don't, I don't like, like it. I don't like the idea of eyeball things, especially then. That's fair enough. I'd, see, that's me when it comes to like throat things. I see oh. the thought, see, like, when some, like, in a horror film, if somebody, if anything happens to somebody's throat, freaks me out. For me, it's eyeballs, wrists, and Achilles tendons. 
Oh, that's fair. That's quite a good, yeah. like, holy trinity of icky yeah. things. The, the triad of grim. Yeah. The triad of grim. Oh, excellent phrase. Thank you. So Gilchrist would also be appointed assistant surgeon for diseases of the eye at the Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow, and it was a post that she held for 16 years. Wow. Yes. That's a fair time. Yes, and apparently she also went back and did kind of like little teaching masterclass type things um, for female students as well. Very nice. Yes. Um, and because the two seem to go hand in hand, um, Marion Gilchrist was also one of the founding members of the Glasgow and West of Scotland Association for Women's Suffrage. Well, she achieved a lot. But it's very true. It's like all these women that tried to get into university, a lot of them were big, big suffrage supporters as well. Um, I mean, I'm sure if they weren't before, getting into university would probably be enough of a shove for them to yeah to change their minds change their tunes exactly so she would go on to join the women's social and political union circa 1907 and that's kind of like the major kind of suffrage group that we widely know about yeah. the, the one that was kind of the more mainstream one yeah um, and in 1909, Gilchrist is recorded as having said that the fight for women's suffrage was, quote, the greatest battle of modern times. Little did she know. <laughs> so Gilchrist's achievements are still recalled at the university, with the Marion Gilchrist Prize awarded to the most distinguished female graduate in medicine each year, and the Postgraduate Club is also named after her. Which I never, ever put two and two together. Mm. And it wasn't until I read that, I was like, oh yeah, the Gilchrist, of course it is. <laughs> oh. I, just, I just presumed it was a man. Because nine times out of ten, it is a man. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? It's true. <laughs> exactly. So she died on the 7th of September, 1952. And in what seems like a final act of defiance against the expectations of her gender at that time... Gilchrist also never married. Stick it to the man. Exactly, literally. But without marrying it, marrying him. <laughs> That's, well, quite right. Quite right too. Who needs a man? Yeah. Who needs a man? Especially if none of them tickle your pickle. She might have not fancied it. Whoa, that was a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's an excellent phrase, but I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> not when speaking of a... Late 1800s woman. Oh, dear. Um, then we guess that's the story of the Glasgow Four. Oh, yay. I think they would probably all be pals with the Edinburgh Seven. I like to think that they were, like, sending like, letters to each other going, Yeah. God and yourself, girls, you can do it. Yeah. Um, I don't think they had, like... I th they were dealt, like, hardship, and it was really, like... Tricky, of course, because you were yeah. literally like negotiating a minefield. But they, I don't think they had as much kind of like, from what I read or from what I, f I personally found, as much like kind of like physical altercations with male students. Did it maybe not quite so much backlash? Yeah, exactly. I think because there was this little separate college for women at the time. Yeah, they were kind of like left alone to get on with it, whereas the Edinburgh Seven were very much trying to get their foot in the Just, door of the university straight yeah. away. Yeah, which is fair. 
um, yeah, nice. I just find it very, very, very interesting because it's because of those women that women like myself were able to attend able to that attend. university today. Curse you! <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> what a laugh. I, uh, well, you know I love a first and I love a last. Those are two of my favourite kinds of things to read about. Absolutely. So there so, you go. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. It makes me wonder about other colleges and universities and things. How quickly met Wigan... <laughs> Wigan? Women what? were able to, to mm-hmm. get themselves into university. Yeah, exactly. But I say get themselves into university because I have no doubt that most first women to attend certain universities probably had a bit of a fight on their hands. Oh, yeah. Um, most definitely. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, I'm going to talk about a man in my story. That's okay. Colin Norris, born the 12th of February 1976, is a former nurse from the Milton area of Glasgow. He worked initially as a travel agent after leaving college, but after a few years in this role, decided to retrain as a nurse. This academic record was, by all accounts, pretty average. But where academia failed to get him noticed, his temper took the reins. He became known for his aggressive confrontations with tutors at the University of Dundee and later his employers. After qualifying in June of 2001, his nursing career took its first steps in Leeds. But it would come as no surprise to anyone who knew him that he quickly fell out with the authority figures of any kind and staff far more experienced than he. He often refused to work with elderly patients, saying he, quote, didn't want to work with that type of person. At times during his placements, he repeatedly refused to change patients or their bedding. He had previously told another nurse during a training placement in 2001 that he, quote, didn't like working with pediatric pediatric patients. And something minor, such as an elderly, elderly patient throwing bed covers off, could cause him considerable anger. Methinks he's in the wrong job. In the wrong job. Maybe try primary teaching. It's the other end of the scale. Absolutely. Although probably we'd just be as raging. Yeah. He, he'd also said he hated his training placement placements in geriatric units. Norris refused to attend the majority of one placement at a nursing home for the elderly and often called in sick during placements at other nursing homes. In one instance, an elderly man requested Colin to empty his catheter bag, which he refused point blank, insisting he do it in the bathroom himself. Now, I have had a catheter in. I wouldn't even think about trying to change that myself. (laughs) Don't know the the rules. Don't know how it works. That's perhaps the safe... You made the right decision in not touching it, methinks. Unfortunately, the elderly man collapsed trying to reach the bathroom. Oh. Other patients stated that Norris had treated them in an offhand or callous manner. Two elderly ex-patients said that Norris had verbally abused them after they rang an emergency buzzer on a ward when an elderly patient climbed out of bed, with Norris then saying to them, quote... I hope you suffer and rot in hell. That's a bit extreme, that. Not half. (laughs) 
In the early stages of his career, he and a colleague were caught out stealing drugs from their work, where the supply was monitored with a close and BDI. Despite being caught committing a fireable offence, he did not lose his job. I would have honestly used this as an excuse to just give him the boot. That's fair. At the time our story takes place, Colin worked at Leeds General General Infirmary and St. James's University Hospital in Leeds, having only qualified as a nurse a year before. Suspicions were raised when Colin predicted the death of a patient called Ethel Hall, saying to a fellow nurse hours before, quote, I predict 5.15am as being the time Ethel Hall will become unwell. He said this despite no medical indications of an impending illness. And Hall's condition did indeed worsen that morning at around 5am. While unwell, nurses, including Colin, came, came round and looked after her, at which point Colin tapped his watch which in my mind was a Mickey Mouse watch for some reason. When I read this story, <laughs> I had a Mickey Mouse watch when I was wee and in my head he was tapping at it. Oh my God. And when he was tapping his watch, he said to the nurse he predicted her decline to, I told you so. That's bizarre. Fishy, fishy. Mm-hmm. On top of this, it later transpired that before there were any indications that she was unwell, he complained about having to fill out the inevitable paperwork when she dies, which she did a few weeks later after falling ill. Colin also was heard saying, quote, It is always in the morning when things go wrong, and someone always dies when I do nights. When questioned by the police about Ethel's death and some three other patients who had unexpectedly died in his care, he said that he ha- seemed to have been unlucky over the last 12 months. Colin even, ha- even had the audacity to admit to the police that he found elderly patients challenging, saying that washing elderly female patients who couldn't bathe themselves was unbearable because he couldn't get used to the smells. Why is he in this job? Horrendous. He (laughs) should have been a lighthouse keeper or... Absolutely. Something that doesn't smell. Or something that doesn't involve humans by the looks of it. (laughs) Yeah, he could have been a tree surgeon. Exactly. Easy peasy. This investigation ended up leading to a further investigation into around 72 cases. Yeah, 72 Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg said that Colin's ability to predict Ethel's illness showed that he had a long-lost relative called Raven Baxter, the teen psychic phenomenon from the 2000s Disney Channel. (laughs) That's not true. He's not actually related to Raven Baxter. Um, I wrote that in when I wrote this story like two weeks ago and obviously forgot about it. (laughs) Uh, So, just kidding, obviously. But he did, however, say it was undoubtedly a spontaneous incident where a criminal nurse at work had, for whatever reason, decided to kill someone, saying, quote, he actually premeditated this hours before. Greg said, quote, I think he was cocky. I think he was overconfident. He was showing off. A criminal psychologist stated that despite the prediction, it was unlikely that he wanted to get caught rather that he merely wanted to demonstrate a sense of superior knowledge. Police noted that in interviews, Colin showed no empathy or remorse for the women who had died or for their families. Uh, 
Of the 72 cases investigated, it was decided by the experts that 18 of the 72 deaths should be reviewed by independent medical experts. The experts confirmed confirmed police suspicions that the deaths of three women were a result of lethal injections of insulin, but they also identified two more victims, one who had also died of insulin poisoning and another who had survived a massive injected overdose. A blood sample was taken from Ethel Hall posthumously after a doctor raised concerns and ordered blood tests and her blood was found to contain an inexplicably large amount of insulin and this became the main evidence that the police had in support of their case. The doctor who had ordered the tests was a diabetes expert who specialised in insulin and hypoglycemic episodes and she believed the incident was suspicious. I'm sure you'll agree. I very much do agree. The amount of insulin in Ethel's blood was about 12 times the normal level. The only nurse... Yes, 12. The only nurse that had cared for all five of the patients and had been there within two hours of them becoming catastrophically ill, was Colin Norris. Police analysed staff rotas, phone calls and personnel files to determine who had access to the wards, insulin, and who was on the wards at the time of that incident. And it was found that, the own, that all members of staff could be ruled out, except Colin Norris. Hmm... It was determined that in the first incident, which happened on the 17th of May 2002, Colin had injected patient Vera Wilby, who was in hospital with a broken hip, with a dose of the painkiller morphine to make her drowsy, before administering more drugs and going off shift. 90 minutes after going off shift, Wilby was found to be semi-conscious and suffering from a sudden hypoglycemic attack, but she survived. On June 12th, another patient was admitted to Collins Hospital with a broken hip, Doris Ludlam. On the 25th of June, she was also given an unnecessary injection of painkillers, followed by drugs to reduce her blood sugar, and Norris went on off shift. She was discovered in a coma 40 minutes later. 88-year-old Bridget Burke, who had been admitted to hospital on the 60th of June, also with a broken hip... (laughs) was discovered on the 21st of July suffering from an inexplicable hypoglycemic attack and she died the next day. 10th of October, 79-year-old Irene Crooks also came in one hip short of a pair. Despite Colin recording that her condition was improving, he found her totally unresponsive just before 6am on the 19th of October, having suffered a hypoglycemic attack. She died the next day. A colleague later said that after Irene fell into a coma, Colin showed no interest in continuing her care. Another colleague even claimed Colin watched in detached amusement after one of the victims had fallen into a coma. Not a single one of these women had diabetes. Every single one of these women was in hospital for a mere broken hip. Oh my God. It was discovered after Ethel's death that two vials of insulin had been taken from the storage fridge and Colin admitted that he was the last person to have access prior to Ethel's injection and the last to see her before she took ill. No stranger to aggression, Colin behaved exactly as one might expect in interviews with police. 
Throughout, he acted aggressive, arrogant, challenging detectives and becoming, becoming physically angry at points, to the point where he had to be restrained. Criminalist Dr Jane Monckton-Smith stated that it was particularly unusual that Norris didn't behave as if he wanted to defend himself in interviews, but instead wanted to challenge the police and act evasively. Colin would later admit that he was trying to show how much more he knew than the police in the interviews. Of course he did, Satan. Classic. The arrogance of men. The trial at Newcastle Crown Court lasted 19 weeks and the jury deliberated for only four days. Colin was convicted by an 11 to 1 majority verdict on the 3rd of March 2008 for the murder of four women and attempted murder of a fifth. He was ordered to serve a minimum of 30 years in prison the following day. Once again, during the trial, the ever calm and serene Colin banged on the windows of the judge and attacked members of the press when departing the court. Cool as a cucumber is Colin Norris. What? what? Mm-hmm. Why he be angry? I know. Very what? obvious it was him. Who peed in your cornflakes, sir? I don't know. Is that yeah. face? I think so, is it not? <laughs> I don't know. If it's not, it is now. should be. Because it would be very annoying. Yeah. Judge Justice Griffith. I knew I would say that wrong. (laughs) Judge Justice Griffith rejected any possibility that Norris was practicing euthanasia because none of the victims were terminally ill. He told Norris when sentencing him, quote, you are, I have absolutely no doubt, a thoroughly evil and dangerous man. You are an arrogant and manipulative man with a real dislike of elderly patients. The most telling evidence was that observation of one of your patients, Bridget, Bridget Tarpey, who said he did not like us old women. The British press then dubbed him an angel of death. I freaking knew it. After yeah. you said you went down in a deep dive, I knew this was incoming at one inevitable, point. <laughs> inevitable. Yep. Leeds Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust apologised to the victims' families for Norris's disturbing crimes, subsequently describing him as an extremely dangerous criminal. In 2009, the Nursing and Midwifery Council struck off Norris from the medical register, taking just five minutes to come to a decision on the matter. Norris, five minutes feels like too long a time. Yeah, surely they should have just been like, yeah, he killed loads of people. Let's just take him off. Let's just get rid of it. Simple. (laughs) See, we did that in six seconds. Six seconds. Um, he is imprisoned at Her Majesty's Prison Franklin. I'm assuming that's in Leeds somewhere, or close to Leeds. Okay. In the aftermath of Norris's conviction, the British media drew comparisons to Harold Shipman, Britain's most prolific serial killer. That's where my who, brain went to, too. Yes. I remember the whole Harold Shipman stuff going down. He... Shipman was responsible for killing more than 250 patients by lethal injection. He was convicted in in the year 2000, only two years before the start of Norris's crimes, and only one year before Norris qualified as a nurse. The same police team that worked on the Shipman case was given the responsibility of investigating Norris's case. Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, who worked on the Shipman case and led Norris's investigation, was convinced that Colin Norris would have gone on to kill considerably more people had he not been stopped. Forensic psychiatrist Sir Richard Badcock... 
<laughs> oh, it's a funny name. Especially oh, if you change his name to Sir Dick Badcock. <laughs> what a man. What a man, what a man, what a man, a good man. Oh, you're such a child, McLeish. It makes such my heart so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Humor's one of my faves. So, oh, um, so Sir Dick Badwilly, the only psychiatrist to formally assess Shipman, stated his belief that Norris was a psychopath who killed elderly patients simply because they got in his way. In 2006, Benjamin Gein, a nurse at Horton General Hospital in Banbury, Oxfordshire, was given 17 life sentences for murdering two of his patients and attacking 15 others. He is another nurse who took it upon himself to use injections, including insulin, Mm. to kill his patients. But a case that perhaps influenced him more than any other is that of Jessie McTavish, She was a nurse convicted and then cleared in 1974 for the murder of an 80-year-old patient with insulin. McTavish worked in Ward 5 at Glasgow's Rush Hill Hospital. One victim was found after tests to have an inexplicable quantity of pethidine in their system, which makes me think of Call the Midwife because they use pethidine a lot. I was literally about to say that. I was like, I know that word. How do I know? That is fully why I know that word. What is that? A painkiller? I think it's a painkiller, yeah whilst the murder victim had been injected with soluble insulin. So she had multiple victims, but I don't know that... I think it was just the one died. Mm. Colleagues of McTavish told the court how they had witnessed her inject a patient with an entirely unnecessary dose of phenobarbitone and made no record of the injection, and that she had said at the time, quote, doctor likes them to go quietly. Oh, that's, that's dark. That's chilling. That is. Oh, no. Despite the blood test evidence, McTavish claimed during the 15-day trial that she had only injected the patient with a placebo of sterile water. However, McTavish had in fact admitted in police interviews that she had administered insulin to patients without authorization. The prosecution said that McTavish had been inspired by an episode of the detective series A Man Called Ironside, in which a character said that insulin was untraceable as a murder weapon and proceeded to murder a person using this method. McTavish had notably discussed with colleagues how the programme had taught her that soluble insulin would be an untraceable agent for homicide. So, A Man Called Ironside inspired Jesse McTavish, who went on to inspire Colin Norris. You see? Mm -hmm. McTavish was jailed for life in October 1974. In February 1975, an appeal was successful. Three appeal judges said that there was ample evidence to support the conviction, but McTavish's legal team successfully argued that the judge, Lord Robertson, had inadvertently misled the jury. They said he had failed to highlight the fact that McTavish denied admitting to the police that she had committed had committed a mercy killing. This is of interest. Norris, a fellow Scottish nurse, grew up only a mile from where McTavish had committed her crimes. So there is oh. a huge chance that he was inspired by this woman. God. Norris's personal tutor at university gave a specific talk to him and other students on the case of Jesse McTavish a year before Norris committed his first attack 
in which Norris used the same method that McTavish had used. Mm. Norris had notably also attended lectures in 1999 on diabetes and the treatment of diabetic patients with insulin and had successfully been taught during one placement about the management of patients with diabetes. Norris appealed against his conviction in 2009, however, he lost. In 2010, an independent inquiry into Norris's murder was held. The inquiry recommended the introduction of, quote, student practice passports, which would report on the personality and integrity of students while they trained as medical professionals at university. I think that's an excellent idea. It's a very good idea. Not everyone is fit to be a caregiver. Absolutely. It was felt that this may have flagged up Norris as an issue earlier had they been in use at the time of his studying, since he had knowingly acted aggressively during placements, had poor absence record, and had clashed with tutors on numerous occasions. These passports, it was argued, would allow universities to evaluate at the end of a student's course whether they were fit to join the medical register. The inquiry found that the University of Dundee had not identified Norris's difficulties in its reference to employers, and the inquiry concluded that organisational system or that organisational systems and cultural factors provided an opportunity for Norris to murder those four women back in 2002. Nurse managers had already been urged after Norris's conviction in 2010. Whoa, that says 2008 conviction in 2008 to take greater care when recruiting staff and NHS employers had introduced new guidance on pre-employment checks. On the 4th of October 2011 new concerns were raised about the safety of Norris's conviction. Retired Professor Vincent Marks, a leading expert on insulin poisoning, said the jury at Norris's trial was led to believe by experts that a cluster of hypoglycemic episodes among people who were not diabetic was sinister. The professor said international medical studies carried out in the years since the conviction told a different story. Quote, looking at all the evidence, all I can say is I think Colin Norris's conviction is unsafe. According to statistical experts, however, severe hypoglycemic episodes in non-diabetic patients are very rare and, ha- and to have five such cases in such a short space of time of which four of the patients patients died, was extraordinary. Mm. The scientific expert called by Norris's defence team himself said at the trial that the five cases being present at the same time in a small space was actually a wild time. Professor Marks says the four patients picked out by the experts after Mrs Hall's death were all at very high risk of developing spontaneous hypoglycemia because they had high-risk factors such as malnutrition, infection, and multi-organ failure. However, when an individual has a hypoglycemic attack from an insulin that is is produced naturally in the body, C-peptides are produced, which will be detected in any blood tests. Mm. The analysis of tests on on all of the victims in this case showed no presence of C peptides, indicating that the insulin was introduced to their bodies externally. Mm. In May 2013, the Criminal Cases Review Commission confirmed it was re-examining the case in the light of new medical and scientific evidence, contradictory to that submitted to the jury during the original trial. 
In January 2015, the foreman of the jury that convicted Norris told the BBC he now believes he's innocent. Apparently, this is the second member of the jury to do so. And in just February 2021, the Criminal Cases Review Commission referred the case to the Court of Appeal, saying there was a serious possibility that this conviction was unsafe. So, in the not-so-distant future, Colin Norris could potentially be released, despite definitely having killed these people. (laughs) Am I right? I think you, there's a high possibility you could be right there, McLeish. Well, get the courts told, because I'm not having it. He's not walking the streets of Leeds or Glasgow. He's not welcome here. I know, but they don't look at it like that. They look at it on the basis of technicalities and the rule of law. They don't look at it as a, uh, is this a dangerous person or not? I didn't know about that. No, I don't. I knew about Jesse McTavish, Mm. but I didn't know about Colin Norris. And it's maybe risky talking about a case that is kind of currently being looked at. But do you know what? I'm nothing if not a risk taker. Well, it's not that the case hasn't been reopened. It's being reviewed, which is different, I think. Is it not? Uh, Yes. Yeah, it's not. It's being reviewed and it's not an appeal of any kind or anything like that. I don't know what the process is, but I wonder if it gets reviewed. If they do deem that it was unsafe, then potentially there's more, there's argument for a retrial and or appeal. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like the thought of him getting out because he 100% killed four elderly women Mm. and tried to kill a fifth. You can't convince me otherwise, Hannah Brown. You can't convince me. That's fair. I'm not going to try and convince you otherwise then. Yeah, well, there you are. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. But I've concluded. I'm yeah. gonna phone the court of appeal in the morning and let them know that yeah. I've decided. I'm sure they'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> yeah, about listen, Mister Court of Appeal and Mrs. Who am I to assume? Um, I actually think that this was perfectly safe, and I think it's safer for all of us for him to stay inside. Although, if yeah. he comes out, what's he gonna do? Because he's been struck off the record. He can't do medicine well, of any kind. True. True. We won't have access to the drugs. I'm sure they're probably stricter on monitoring of drugs now than they were then. Agreed. Agreed. So, Do you think they'd learn from past yeah, so mistakes, considering it's happened a few times, apparently? Do you know what I mean? Harold Shipman, what happened to him again? He died in prison, did he not? I think, he, yeah, he did. Yeah, he's not yeah, the he one. Did. There are like other stories of people getting let out because they took ill. I Do don't I mean? think he was one of them. I don't think he was one of them either. For a second there, I thought he was. But I remember listening to the whole Harold Shipman thing on the radio. Wow. Back in the days um, when I don't think our car had a CD player. <laughs> the year 2000, I tell you. Oh, what a time. But um, yeah, the angel of death thing is fascinating. Isn't it? Because, it, like you've said previously, when you've said you've been talking about it, either it is like, it's just a psychopath, sociopath, whatever you want to call said people who have access to kind of already vulnerable people and very slick at ways of killing them off. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you do have the people who think they're doing a good thing. But even then, that in itself is quite twisted. Yeah, 100%. Because 
you might think that you're doing that person a service, but there's still something very, very sinister about it. A hundred percent. I mean, involuntary euthanasia, however you want to spin it, is murder. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, unless you get a letter or written out on a napkin, I'm not buying it. Yeah. Get that, get that patient to scribble their name down. Yeah, definitely. I hereby say that dying of a hypoglycemic attack is acceptable. Lots of love, <laughs> Doris. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I, d- I doubt that very much. I don't think they wait for written c- consent, do they? No. Um, and especially these people who went into the hospital with a broken hip. Yeah, exactly. They should have recuperated and then been out, skipping the lanes, no probs. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's very, I think it is, it's a very murky kind of underworld is the kind yeah. of angel of death motive. It's just, it's twisted. However you try to justify it, however you try to justify yeah. it, it's twisted. Yeah, because it's the same thing with, it sounds so stupid, but the people that you probably trust most in this world, kind of like, or professionals that you trust, is probably doctors and nurses and taxi drivers do you know what i mean yeah you do have to put so much trust into them yeah yeah it's like it's like medical professionals are people that you literally put your life in their hands sometimes so these are people that you kind of have like unconditional respect and trust towards so to have it kind of so violently to, to to like take advantage in such a horrible literally murderous way it's yeah. genuinely, it's quite, it's quite scary. It's quite scary. A hundred percent. It's, um, it's sneaky. Yeah, it, it's hiding in plain sight, being a murderer, but hiding in plain sight. Fully, yeah. yeah. And, a, and, and, a, and, a, and it's like you're in an environment and you're in a building, you're in a place that death is, can be prevalent. Yeah. So but, you think you can get away with it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? There's just, there's a lot that makes it really, yeah, really genuinely quite sinister, but really quite fascinating in a strange kind of, looking at it from a kind of psychology kind of way. That's how I think I ended up getting in the deep hole, because I was like, how do I can see why. How does this happen? How do people get something out of this? I don't understand. And you just um, have to look at, like, the Harold Shipman case and the number of people that that man killed and nobody kind yeah. of noticed. Yeah, totally. 250 patients in his care. And he yeah. wasn't... I could be wrong in saying this, but was he not a GP? Yeah, he was. So Sure he was, yeah. It's not as if people swan up to your surgery every day and then die. Yeah, exactly. It's wild. Yeah, so weird it's it's really it's really quite disturbing stuff you're welcome thanks (laughs) (laughs) it does make me slightly terrified of actually ever having to go to a hospital ever again what if i end up with a an angel of death treating me as always please pop along to our instagram and our facebook give us likes and follows there we post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story along with our magic hat mondays where you can give your responses to our questions 
our We Love a Link Wednesdays, where we join links between different stories that we've told. And of course, Fun Fact Friday, where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or message us it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. Can I ask you a quick question? Absolutely. Do you have a tattoo in your hand? What is that there. mark in your hand? Yeah. Oh, it is just a bit of black pen. It's a bit of black pen. It looks a bit like yeah, a willy. Like at- <laughs> I was going to say it looks like a musical note, but okay. Oh yeah, if you're like this, it looks like a musical <laughs> note. Imagine if I just got a surprise tattoo. Honestly, I was sitting looking at it and I was going, that looks really quite like a thing has has something happened and he's not told me <laughs> no 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 i've not gone okay, all like no, it's just pen i've not gone all cool it's just pen um very good pen because it does not come off oh there we go it's <laughs> off a bit now, but i feel like i'm still kind of warming up to speaking i don't know why like that <laughs> a lot of those sentences weren't great i had dropped a lot of letters but i made it work oh, you she, couldn't tell that's good thank you